0: Amen. Let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 10. You know, as we continue in the book of Acts, we're going to be once again visiting the Acts of Peter as he continues to take the center stage. But I do know one thing that in reality, these are the Acts of God. And that's what's going to be mind-blowing today as we see just God moving powerfully. We're going to see just how He is sovereign and powerful over all things. We're going to get a glimpse of God's work and how He moves in people's lives to accomplish His will. I pray and hope that as we go through this chapter that we're going to understand the power of God more than we did before we walked through these doors. The title of today's message is Vision. We're going to look at two men. Two men that we have, that had visions. Visions from the Lord. And as we see these visions, we're, I pray that we would all be encouraged that as we have received visions from the Lord, as we have been led by His Holy Spirit, that we would walk in them and we would allow God to do great and glorious works through us, as He intends to do. You know, as we have just a long chapter as well as, as well as lots of material to cover, we're going to jump right into verse 1. We're going to just read them verse by verse. We're going to expound on these verses and just see the Spirit lead and His Word move and, and as they work together just to transform our ways of thinking to transform our lives according to His Word and His will. Beginning here in verse 1, it says, There was a certain man in Caesarea, and he was called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who had feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the poor and prayed to God always. Always. You know, as we stop here, we're introduced to a man named Cornelius. And as we see Dr. Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, he wants to bring our attention to this man. He wants us to, to know that this man has been set apart by God. He calls him out by name and his name is Cornelius. And then we're given details about this man. God wants us to know things about him. And so he reveals these things about him so that we can know him more personal. It tells tells us here that he was a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. What does it mean to be a centurion of the Italian Regiment? Let me share this with you. The Italian Regiment, Roman cohort. And what's a cohort? A cohort is a unit, a military unit. And so we have the Italian regiment, that's a, a military unit. But let me give you some insight when it comes to Romans and the army. The army or the Roman army could be divided into legions of 6,000 men. That's how they would divide them, right? The, the army was great, the army was vast. And they would divide them into 6,000 men. And legions were divided into cohorts of 600 men. And then the cohorts were divided into six groups of 100 men. And these 100 men were overseen by a centurion. And so the centurion was considered the captain or the commander of the these hundred men. And so we have here Cornelius, who is one of these men. He is a captain. He's a commander of a hundred men. And it tells us that he is in Caesarea. This is where he lives. He lives in Caesarea. And as we think about Caesarea, remember a few weeks ago we talked about Philip. Remember Philip, the deacon, and how God used them to spread the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch. And this Ethiopian eunuch, he gets baptized and Philip is caught up and he's taken to another city and then he ends up in Caesarea. This is the same city where Philip is. And we'll talk about this in a bit. Philip is in the same city that Cornelius is, even though he's not mentioned in this chapter, but there's a reason for that and I'll get into this later on. When we look at the description of Cornelius, in verse 2 it begins to tell us that he was a devout man. A devout man. A devout man means he was a religious man. So we have a religious man here. Does does this mean that a religious man is saved? Does this mean that a religious man, just because you're religious, you're going to go into the kingdom of heaven? Absolutely not. And so what we have here is we have this, this religious man. He's a devout man. We know that the things that he does are good, but according to the words of Cornelius in Acts chapter 11, verse 14. In Acts 11, verse 14, it tells us that the centurion was not saved. In other words, he didn't go into heaven because of the good things that he did. He was actually told by an angel that he had to go to Peter, and Peter would tell him how he would be saved. As we think about this, we think to ourselves, but you know what? Why aren't religious people saved? They seem to do good. They seem to do good works, but yet we have Cornelius who's doing these good works and yet he's not saved. Let me remind you of one thing. When it comes to people in religion, when it comes to religious people, Religious people are always working their way into heaven. They work their ways into heaven. That's what religion is all about. It's about reaching God. Man reaching God. And you reach God through your works that you do. Those are religious people. See, there's something far better than this. Because, see, God came down from heaven to reach us. And we beheld His glory as He came down, as the Son of God came down, His name is Jesus Christ. And what God desires from all of us is, is not to reach up to God, but to allow God to reach into our hearts. See, God's desire is that we would have a relationship with Jesus, that we would have a relationship with God, and that is through Jesus Religious people are a people of religious works. But relational people are a people of heart works. It comes from the heart. See, when we allow Jesus into our heart, it begins to change it. We begin to think differently. We begin to act differently. We begin to speak differently. See, when it it comes to our works, the works that we do to reach God, God looks at them and says, you know what? They're nothing. He actually turns them as filthy rags. This is what he says in Isaiah 64, verse 6. He says, but we are an unclean thing. In other words, everyone is unclean. Everyone is a sinner. There is none, none good, no, not one. We're all sinners. And he describes the works, the righteousness, the things that we think that are good. He says that they are like filthy rags. And understand one thing, your works will never get you into heaven. The good things that you think are good that you're doing, apart from Jesus, apart from your faith, apart from surrendering yourself to Jesus Christ, they're never going to get you to heaven. This is why Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 describes us how we are saved. It is very clear, it is very simple. In Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, through believing. And then he goes on to say, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is God's gift to us. Salvation. And it's not of works. Your salvation does not come by the things that you do. Salvation doesn't come by your good works. Otherwise, it says, we would be boasting in them. We would be bragging about these things. See, God wants a relationship with us. And that relationship comes when we invite Him in, when we believe in His Son, the one that came, the one that died for our sins, the one that paid the penalty that we should have paid. And what happens is when we come to Him by faith, We begin to serve Him for who He is and what He's done. And that's what's so amazing is that I serve Him not because I want to draw near to Him. I serve Him because what He did in my life. What He's done for me and who He is. See, when we think about serving Him, it's not because we think we have to. It's because we want to. We want to serve Him. We want to be led by Him. We want to please Him. That's when you know that, you know what, there's things that are right in my heart. To see people that give up things, to give up families, to give up occupations, to give up friends, because they know God. They've tasted of His grace and His forgiveness. They've tasted of His mercy and His grace. They've tasted God. And so they surrender their lives to serve Him. As we see also in verse 2, it says that Cornelius was a man who feared God. Does this mean that he was a Jewish convert? Because that's what we have here. We have a Roman here that is fearing God. and Does this mean that he gave himself to the Lord? Was he a proselyte? We don't know if he became a proselyte, a Jewish convert, but, convert. but what we do know is that he feared God. He feared Him. Can you fear God and not be saved? Absolutely. How many of us remember, when I was in my sins, I knew I was going to get punished by God, but I didn't. You know what? I I, I had a fear, right? I knew that, you know what? I'm going to receive punishment. I'm going to go to hell for my sins. But yet, I still did my sin, right? Because I enjoyed it. And so as we look at these things, these things are possible. The other thing that we know about Cornelius is what we see here is that he led his household. You know what? He led his household in religion as well as in fearing God. So not only was he a good soldier that went up the ranks to become a centurion, but he was also a good leader of his home. He was leading his family in what he believed to be the truth. And then we also see there in verse 3 that He gave alms. What are alms? Alms are offering monetary gifts to the poor, just like we're collecting right now. We're collecting this money to give to the children there in Primo Tapia, Mexico. And as we think about that, that's called an offering. And let me remind you, I'm just going to give you A quick thing about tithes and offerings. Remember about tithing is giving to the Lord. That's what we collect at the end of church. Those are what we give to the Lord. Then you have offerings. It's much different than tithes. An offering is what we give to the poor. It's above and beyond our tithing. Remember this. Offerings are never intended to replace your tithing. Because we give to the Lord. And we give this in the form of tithings. And offerings are above and beyond what we give to the poor, what we give to organizations that have a good cause. And so this man, this Cornelius man, he gave alms, he gave offerings to the poor Jews, those that were struggling. And the last thing that we're told about this man is that he was a prayerful man. As it says there in verse 2, this man prayed. It says that he prayed always. Imagine that. This man was a man of prayer. And he sought the Lord through prayer. And let's see what happens next. In verse 3 it says, About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? The ninth hour of the day. Let's talk about this. It's 3 p.m. So you know Jews would pray three times a day. They would pray at 9 a.m., they pray at noon, which was 12 p.m., and then they prayed at 3 p.m. Orthodox Jews still do the same thing. They continue to pray three times a day. And so this centurion, right, remember, we don't know if he was a Jewish proselyte, but we know he was also praying at the time that they would pray. And at 3 p.m., he has a vision. And this vision is, An angel of God. An angel comes to visit Cornelius and he calls him out. And Cornelius, as we know, he's a fearful man. He fears the Lord. He fears God. And he responds, What is it, Lord? And the angel responds, Your prayers and your offerings to the poor have been seen by God. They've been received by God. How many of us, I know I used to think this too, we think, you know what, God doesn't hear the prayers of unbelievers. But yet, what do we see here? We see that God is still listening to their prayers. He was an unbeliever. He didn't, he didn't know. He hadn't surrendered himself to Jesus Christ. Do you remember the prayers you would do is, you know, when you were at a point of drawing near to the Lord and you were asking God to help you. Well, guess what? He heard those prayers. And He sent people to you. And He spoke through you, to you through people. As we keep reading on in verse 5. It says, Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. What you must do to be saved. That's what we saw in Acts 11, there, verses 13 and 14. We see this. But instructions are given to Cornelius. The angel tells Cornelius, send men to Joppa. I want you to know that Joppa is about 32 miles south by the sea, south of uh, of, uh, Caesarea. And a reminder that Peter was in Joppa. In Acts 9.43, it tells us that Peter was in Joppa. So he's 32 miles from Caesarea. And as we are told here, as well as in Acts 9.43, that he was staying with Simon the tanner. What is a tanner? Is that one that goes out by the sea and sunbathes? No. That's not what he was. You know what a tanner is? A tanner is one that converted skins into leather. Many of you have leather shoes on. That's what they would do. They convert the skin into leather. He would work with dead animals. Which means that according to the Mosaic Law, if you touch unclean animals, if you touch these animals that are dead, guess what? You are unclean. You can't be touching them. You got to go back and cleanse yourself. So this was forbidden by the law, but yet we see Peter, things are changing. He's not so judgmental. He's not so legalistic. Things are happening. Things are changing in his heart. And in verse 7, we see here, And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants, and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. So after Cornelius gets the instructions by the angel of the Lord, what he does is, he gets his two servants, and he gets A devout soldier. Also another devout soldier. Another devout soldier that doesn't know the Lord, but he's religious. And so what Cornelius does is he explains to the three of them what happened in the vision. He explains to them. And let's get this right. We have an actual angel appearing to Cornelius. And so Cornelius, I mean, blown away by this, right? What would we do if we had a vision where an angel of the Lord spoke to us? We'd be blown away by this. And so he explains it. And he tells you, you guys got to go find Peter. He's in Joppa. He's somewhere in Joppa. You find him. And so verse 9, the next day it says this, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, we're talking about here the the two servants and the devout soldier that Cornelius sent, they drew near the city and Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. So as those men are uh, nearing Joppa, Peter the next day, remember this, Cornelius saw had this angel of the Lord appear to him the previous day and the next day, we have now Peter that goes up to the housetop. And let me show you on the screen to give you an idea of what this looked like. See, we have one picture there that's believed to be where Simon the Tanner lived. And then there's another one. You see the, the top, the roof? That's where they would pray. He would go on that roof and he would pray there. The rooftop, they were flat. And so as Peter goes up there, it's... The sixth hour. What does the sixth hour mean? It means that it's now noon. Remember, we said that the Jews prayed three times, 9 a.m., 12 p.m., and 3 p.m. So now we're looking at 12 p.m. And this was a, the time of prayer. So Peter goes up there to pray. And then verse 10, what happens next? Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Just get this. Think about this, right? Someone is preparing food down below. And the aroma of the good food is going up. And yet Peter, right, he's supposed to be praying during this time. And so what happens is, he's, you know what, as he, as he smells the food, he begins to get hungry. For those of you that pray in the morning, has this ever happened to you? Your wife is cooking or your mom is cooking. And you're praying and you're like, oh man, it smells so good and you got to hold those thoughts captive right and then you're smelling the pancakes or you're smelling the oatmeal or, or for those of you that like those huevos rancheros right and you're like oh man i want to go eat them so you got to control i mean you got to hold these thoughts captive right so you could continue praying and as peter's holding these thoughts captive what happens he goes into a trance And it tells us what he saw in this trance. He said, and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheep bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and the birds of the air. So as he's in a trance, he's still awake. What does he see? He sees this. He sees a great Sheet. And I want you to know about this sheet. It was let down by its four corners. And what Peter sees on this sheet is he sees all these four footed animals. These wild beasts, he sees animals, and he sees birds. So as soon as he sees these unclean animals, he says this in verse 13. Or as he sees them, he hears a voice in verse 13 and he says, And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. And this was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven again. A voice speaks. For those of you that have... The words, rise, Peter, kill and eat in red. What does that mean? Jesus spoke that. And Peter immediately responds after Jesus tells him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's unclean or uncommon. And so we see again in verse 15 how the Lord responds to him and says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. In other words, when God is cleansed, it is not unclean. And this was done three times. You know, when you think about this, right? With Peter, have you noticed that he has to have things repeated to him? There's always repetition. Three times is when he gets it. I mean, think about that, right? He just doesn't get it the first time. It happens three times. And this is not just a normal thing, but it's part of who Peter is, right? Right? He needs things repeated to him over and over again. Remember when the Lord told him, you're going to deny me three times. He didn't have a second thought when he denied him once, not twice, but then the third time he's like, oh no, I get it now. The same thing when, remember when Jesus rose from the dead and he's by the Sea of Galilee and what does he see? Jesus cooking over there and he goes on and he runs and he jumps off the boat and he swims to Jesus and then Jesus and him begin to converse and Jesus asked him do you love me and he has to repeat it three times I love you I love you I love you and the same thing here you know many times we're like Peter ourselves aren't we we gotta hear it over and over again instead of just getting it the first time and what's surprising is what he says here he says you know not so Lord I don't eat anything that's unclean. Not so, Lord. Meditate on that. Not so, Lord. Does that make sense? If someone is your Lord, are you going to tell them no? Think about that. You could say no to your friends. You could say no to your uh, co-workers. You could say, hey, no, buddy, or no. I'm not going to do that, or no, no, no. But when it comes to the Lord, can you say no to the Lord? Think about that. But yet we find ourselves, when the Lord is asking us to do things, many times we're not jumping and doing what He's asking us to do. We begin to question His commands. We begin to ask Him, Well, Lord, I don't know about that one. Or, Lord, You understand I can't do that. Or, Lord, You know what? I'm afraid or I'm fearful. See, if the Lord is asking us to do something, He's expecting us to do it if He's truly your Lord. Let's keep reading in verse 17. It goes on to say, Now while Peter wandered within himself what the vision which he had seen meant, behold, the man who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. You know, during this time, let's think about this, right? Peter is thinking about that vision. He's thinking about, you know what, all of these animals with that sheet that was taken down, all these four footed animals, these you know what, these wild beasts, these creeping things, and and these birds. And he's thinking to so himself, what does this mean? And all of a sudden, while he's thinking that the Holy Spirit speaks. He speaks to Peter and he says, You know what? Three men are here. They're seeking you. Go with them. Doubt nothing, for I sent them. And so what does Peter do in verse 21? Then Peter went down to the man who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by, the holy, by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. And then he invited them in and lodged them. What does Peter do after this? Peter goes to him and asks him, why? Why did you come? And they begin to explain the events of their master Cornelius, the centurion. And based on what he hears, he invites him in and they slept there at the tanner's house. And it tells us that the next day, as it says there at the end of verse 23, on the next day Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. I want to bring your attention to something though that caught my attention. Do you see what servants of Cornelius said of Cornelius? When it talks about that he's a just man, that he's a God-fearing man, that he's a man of good reputation among all the nation of the Jews. This man had a good reputation. People that know you, what do they say about us? Think about that. What do people say about us? You would think that they would say good things, but is that what they see? Is that who you are? See, we can all have a good reputation. It depends on your actions. Not on what you say, but what you do. Remember that. It's what you do, not what you say. Talk is cheap. Action speaks it all. See, if we're not doing good, then it's time to change, right? The word the word of God says that a good name is desired more than riches, more than money. It's worth more your reputation than money. Centurions, one thing that I have seen as we've been going through Matthew, we've gone through, we met a couple of centurions. Remember the one that. That also had a great reputation. It's not the same one, but that other centurion. Remember, he says, "Lord, I have a servant that's sick," and the Lord says, "You know what? He doesn't live far from here." But the centurion says, "You know what, Lord? You don't have to come. All you have to do is hear the word, and he's going to be healed." And we have another centurion, right? That remember was at the cross of Jesus and who says himself, truly this man was the son of God. You have these men that, these centurions that believed in God, that that also had good reputations. And the Bible brings that to our attention, reminding us of how important it is for us as a people of God to have a good reputation. In verse 24 it says, And the following day they they entered Caesarea, now Cornelius was waiting for them. And had called together his relatives and close friends. You know what? I love this. When Peter goes to this home, we are told that Cornelius, he called all of his friends and his family to hear the message from Peter. This should minister to us, right? How important it is for us to be inviting people, to be sharing the gospel with our family and friends. And this is what Cornelius, Cornelius wanted people to hear the message that God had for him. Do we have this same desire for people to hear the message that God has for them? In verse 25 it says, as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I myself am also a man. You know I love this because what we have we have these these this Cornelius this centurion this powerful man. When Peter gets it, what's the first thing that he does? He drops to his knees and he begins to worship Peter. And what does Peter do? He tells him stand up. Don't worship me. I'm only a man. I'm no different. And yet we have so many religions, so many people that elevate themselves above men. And yet you have Peter, the one that walked with God, with Jesus himself. And yet he wants that to be worshipped. He doesn't want people kneeling down to him. How many of you are familiar with St. Peter's Basilica? You've heard of it, right? It's, some of you have heard of it. How many of you know Michelangelo? I think we've been taught about him in our history books, Right? the great artist, the great painter, the great... What do you call them? Sculptors. Did you know that he did... He has Peter. He did an amazing statue of Peter. And what's a shame? What's so shameful about this is that you know that millions of people have gone through St. Peter's Basilica and they still kiss the feet of Peter's statue. Why do they do that? Because they're ignorant to the scriptures. They don't know that, you know what, that they're men just like us. Peter's a man just like you and I. We're no different. We're all sinners. We don't worship one another. We want a good reputation, but just because you have a good reputation doesn't mean that you want people to worship you. And that's what we have here. As we keep reading on in verse 27, it goes on to say, And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Imagine, this is so... I mean, for Peter to see all these people, they're they're eager to hear a message from Peter. And then verse 28 says, Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation? But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked them, for what reason have you sent me? Peter says, why did you send me? But before that, Peter tells them, you know what? You know it's unlawful for me to keep company with Gentiles. Did you know that the Jews considered Gentiles as dogs? They looked at them as inferior. But yet, Peter's heart was changing. He stood with a tanner. God had revealed something to him and it was all making sense. That vision was now clicking and he began to understand. Peter knew that there were no dogs. And what's awesome too is that Cornelius and his family and his friends knew that Peter was no God. As we think about this, right? He asked him, why did you call me? Verse 30 goes on to say, so Cornelius said, for days I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. He just repeats what happened. And said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the sea, and when he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore... We are all present before God to hear all things commanded by God. So he just declares everything that happened. And let's keep reading in verse 34. It says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. I love what he said here. God has no partiality. You know what this means? See, for us as a people, we're always looking at the outside, aren't we? And we begin to elevate people by what they look like or who they are or the talents and the gifts that they have. But as I mentioned to you earlier, a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's all about the heart. Jesus doesn't look at the outside. He doesn't care if you have a master's or a PhD. He doesn't care if you failed first grade three times. He doesn't care what you look like. He looks at your heart and that's what he cares about. That's why he's not partial towards anybody. He doesn't doesn't care what you are, what you were yesterday. He looks at your heart today. Where is your heart today? As we keep reading on in verse 36, Peter uses this opportunity now to preach the gospel to them. He has a message for them. Verse 34 is, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and, shoved him openly, and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead." And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of all, the, uh, to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sin. Whoever believes in him will be forgiven of their sins. He preached the gospel. He immediately starts talking about Christ and his lordship. He reminds them, you guys all heard of John the baptism. I mean, John the Baptist, he was preaching a a baptism of repentance. But we saw the Holy Spirit come upon the Lord. And He did supernatural works. He did miracles. And we were witnesses of His crucifixion and His resurrection. And then the great commission that He gave us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then at the end He says, if you want your forgiveness of sins, you need to believe in Jesus. Salvation by faith alone. Faith alone. No works. Faith alone. And so as they hear the gospel being preached, as they hear about Jesus being Lord of all, as they hear how He rose from the dead, and how He, you know what? How He is the one that we must be saved by. Look at what happens in verse 44. And while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Imagine that. Because they believed, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Only because they believed. This is why the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they received the forgiveness of sins. Now the Holy Spirit was able to fill a clean cup. Remember, the Holy Spirit, if you're dirty, cannot fill you. But here we have, these guys have been cleansed because they believed in Jesus and their sins were forgiven and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And what was the evidence of the Holy Spirit falling upon them? Verse 45 says, And those of the uh, circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because a gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Imagine this. They began to speak in tongues. Remember, Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of God. Matthew 16 verse 19 talks about this. Remember, Peter, what he did when he preached Jesus to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. They opened their hearts and 3,000 people were saved. And then it went to the Samaritans just as God had ordained it. And when it went to the Samaritans, remember, Peter preached over there too. And the whole Samaritan, the Samaritan village was saved. The doors were open to these half-Jews. And now it came to the non-Jews. And Peter preached Jesus and the door was open to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10. As we read in verse 47, it says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Remember, we've been sharing with all of you. As we see here, the baptism took place when? The water baptism took place after they believed in Jesus. Earlier this morning, we did a baby dedication. And we dedicate the baby because, see, he hasn't made a proclamation of faith in Jesus. So, how can you baptize somebody according to the Scriptures who hasn't surrendered their heart to Jesus Christ? See, babies are sa- infants are saved already. Some religions preach that they need to be baptized in order to be saved. But yet the Scriptures tell us something contrary. The scriptures say that after you believe, you're to be baptized. And that's what we have here. And baptism is just an outward expression of an inward decision. We had a baptism. I think there were eight people that got baptized last Sunday. It was beautiful. It's actually on YouTube if many of you want to see it. If you haven't been baptized, God commanded us to be baptized. If He's your Lord, He tells us, be baptized. How can you say, no, Lord, not yet, not so, Lord. These people got baptized. They were water baptized. And we see what happened here. As we go through the scriptures, it's just a repetition. We're going to read the first 18 verses of Acts chapter 11, which is going to go through them. Because the apostles and the brethren, as it says there in verse 1 of Acts 11, who were in Judea, heard the Gentiles, had also received the word of God, and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him. They were upset about it. They wanted to argue with him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. How could you do that? But Peter explained it to them, in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheep, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must call—you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. And at that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them. The Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren, Peter is talking about the six that were with him, not the three that Cornelius sent. And we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning, talking about Pentecost. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how He said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God had gave them the same gift as He gave us, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? Who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. It came to us. It came to the Gentiles. This was God's plan all along. Jews first, and then the rest. You know, as we see this amazing time, this amazing point in the history of the church, it's, God's work is amazing. God's work is, is, is beyond and over the top we serve a great God and to see what God was doing, to see how He spoke to Cornelius and to see how He spoke to Peter and He brought them together and He brought now salvation to the Gentiles. You know, as we go through these things, what can we learn from all of this? What can we learn? You know, as I give you points to consider, why do I give you these points? Just to ponder, just to think about the greatness of God, to meditate on these points as we leave this place. I'm gonna give you three, and the first one is this. God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over all. What's amazing about this is that God is sovereign over all things. He's He's all knowing, He's all powerful. He's able to move things to according to His will. But then comes the question well, what about sin? when evil and bad things happen and terrible things happen, that's caused by sin. That's not caused by God. That's sin that causes that. But the promise from God is that He turns all things together for good because He's sovereign. And we can't forget that. To see the power of God, how He moves, the great things that He does. God wants you to meditate on His greatness, on His power, on His all-knowing ability. The second point is this. God gives visions. God gives vision. Whether you have a vision or a dream, God desires that you follow it. God is giving you visions and dreams. Some of you have had visions here. Some of you have had dreams here. What's the difference between a dream and a vision? Are the same thing, except one happens when you're asleep and the other one happens when you're awake. Did you know that the birth of this church was through a dream? Some of you are familiar with this. It was about a year and a half or two years before it actually took place. Before the birth of this church. I was flying back from Ohio and I was reading this book and I can't remember it again. On the Calvary Chapel pastors, what's the name? Anyone know that? Harvest. Harvest. There you go. I was reading the book Harvest. And I put the book down and you know what? I, I asked the Lord and I, and I, and I threw a, a fleece out there. I threw a blanket and I asked the Lord, Lord, if you want me to plant a Calvary Chapel, then give me the dream of the church. And so I go to sleep and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, I, I really had this desire. I believe this is from you. And I was excited about it, right? And I, after reading it, I was so encouraged by what God was doing through different men. And so I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, if that's for me, then give me a dream of it. And so I slept and I woke up and there was no dream. And I was sad. I was disappointed. Believe me, I wanted to cry. That's how, that's how I, thought I, I thought to myself, okay, Lord, I guess this isn't from you. That's how sorrowful I was, and I even got home, and my wife, who can, is a testimony of this, she saw me. I was very discouraged. And she asked me, "What's wrong?" And I said, "Don't worry, nothing, nothing's wrong. It's okay, I'm just tired. I just want to go to sleep. I wanted the day to be over. So when I went to sleep that evening, the Lord gave me a dream. He gave me a dream of the church. And in that, it was such a beautiful dream that I began to cry and I began to cry out loud. It was more like a whale. And my wife wakes me up and she wakes me up and she says, what's wrong with you? What's wrong? And I told her, you're not going to believe this. And I told her what happened. She goes, write it down and I wrote down the dream. I still have it to this day. But this is how, what God does. Many, dream, many visions God gives us, sometimes we ignore them many dreams He gives us, we ignore them. That you know that great things are done through dreams and visions if we act upon them? God is just saying, take a step of faith. I took a step of faith and God fulfilled the vision that He gave me. When you, talk, when you look at Paul, Paul himself, what did Paul do? Paul saw a vision. You're supposed to take the gospel to Europe. In a vision, he saw that. And what does He do? He takes it to Europe. And it spreads all over Europe. You know, many times we're thinking to ourselves, well, you know what? I'm not called to do full-time ministry. God just doesn't give you visions for full-time ministry. God gives you other dreams and visions. Remember that. You know, some of us are wanting to be doctors or engineers or whatever the case may be. God wants you to be have a vision to bring the gospel to those people, to use your talents and the gifts that He gave you, to bless others. You know, my brother, he's a doctor. And he's gone to Mexico now to do outreaches. He's not retired. He went to India to do a medical outreach. Just because we're not in full-time ministry doesn't mean that we can't be used by God. For those of you that are business people, Bring the gospel, bring Jesus Christ into where you're at. You know the founder of American cereal company Quaker Oats. What's his name? Henry Cromwell, Cromwell, or Crowwell, Crow. This man, God blessed this man abundantly. And you know what he did with this money? He gave it to churches. He gave it to non-profits. The gospel gospel spread as he funded a lot of these things. We don't have to be in full-time ministry. God will use you where you're at. God will give you visions. God will give you dreams. And some may say, well, what if He never gives me a dream? What if He never gives me a vision? God will lead you by His Spirit. Point number three. He will lead you by His Spirit. That's what He wants to remind us today. That He is leading you by His Spirit. The whole book of Acts is about the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit did amazing works with the early church. And the Holy Spirit wants to do amazing works through us. That's what it's all about. Are we now sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit? Can we hear that voice? God is asking a lot of us to do a lot of things, especially in these times. We're living now in the end times. God is asking many of us, do this for me. Share this with me. Share this for me. Speak to this person. Be an instrument for me here. We want to finish strong, don't we? We want to sprint across that finish line. When you look at the signs, the earthquakes, you look at the wickedness, You look at Israel and the nations coming against Israel. You look at all of these things just pointing to the Lord's return. Let's be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. Allow Him to work through us. May He work as He did with the New Testament church early on at the birth of the church. May He work through us as a people. I saw the Spirit of God moving on Thanksgiving through all those that were there. It was amazing. And those that were there, raise up hands. Before you raise your hand, who agrees with me that the Spirit of God was moving through us there? He was moving powerfully. People were surrendering their lives. It wasn't their doing. It wasn't credit to any man there. God gets the glory. If there's anyone to glory, you glory in the Lord. And when we're sensitive to His leading and to His moving, He will do great works through us. Amen? Let's close. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your message. We thank You for Your reminder.